Hello, and welcome back to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. As always, it is your host, Nick Sararis. I am here on what is a much more temperate and livable environment on this Monday afternoon as I am recording. Like I said on the show that went out on Monday morning, I'm going to the Yankee game tonight, so no new commentary on either of the NHL playoff series or the or the Celtics Heat series, but I did want to put out an episode today because I've been slacking in the content department lately, need to put together a nice string of content as opposed to just when I feel like recording, but like I said on yesterday's show, it was really busy last week, and you know, at 25... Going out on a weeknight takes two days to recover from now. So at that point, I, I need to be aware of that. So if there isn't an episode until Thursday, uh, again, you understand why. Okay. But before we get to today's show, which we're probably going to mostly talk about baseball because I haven't done a baseball-centric episode probably since the hockey playoff started, but we'll do that. But before we get to the baseball talk, I do got to remind everyone to help support the show. Number one, please, please, please subscribe to the show wherever you'd like to get your podcast. The show is available on all of the major podcasting platforms. Number two, if you are using Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I really would appreciate if you could be so kind as to leave the show a review on Apple Podcasts. Once you've hit that plus sign in the top right corner to subscribe to the show, you're going to scroll past our recent episodes. You're going to go down. After about five or six episodes, you're going to reach a a line. Underneath that line, there's going to be five clear purple stars. Hit the one furthest to the right. That's a five-star review. Underneath that is a button with purple letters that says write a review. If you could be so kind as to leave a few words, that would be greatly appreciated. Please leave the show reviews. Reviews help the show out a lot. And lastly, I do it all the time, and I'll say it again. Support your content creators, folks. If it's somebody with a Substack, give them your email to subscribe. If it's YouTube, if it's TikTok, if it's Instagram, if it's, God forbid, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you see content you're enjoying, interact with it so other people can find it. It takes an extra second of your time, and it really helps out content creators like me, who are trying to find their way in the content soup that is the internet right now. Okay, I'll see you guys on the other side of the drop. We'll talk a little baseball, and hopefully I'm going to get to see Adley Rushman play tonight. So, I'll see you guys in a sec. that we will get on into it so real quick before we start talking about baseball i do want to touch on this again i talked about it yesterday but the nhl has got to do something in these situations where one of like the 14 visible minority players is a subject of targeted harassment like nazim kadri's been since game three of the blues avalanche series it, it wouldn't take much for somebody in the league office to issue a very blanket statement of a uh, we support all our players no matter where they're from what they look like what nationality what religion they practice it would be very easy to do something blanket like that to say that hate of any kind has no place in our game and if you're acting like that if you're harassing players on social media if you're give, if you're sending death threats on social media you're not part of the hockey community it'd be very easy to for the NHL to issue blanket statements like that to try and isolate those types of assholes away from the rest of us who just want to love and enjoy hockey but they don't care because they're worried about not losing 
any individual person. One individual person who's upset with being singled out for being an asshole is too much for the NHL to lose. So instead of trying to grow the game and encourage new fans from different backgrounds, we're here still with Jim from Mississauga in Canada issue, sending cadre death threats on Instagram. That That's the thing, man. All I want is for everybody to be able to enjoy the game. And until the league does a better job of trying to protect the vulnerable and the v- people who are going to be subject to this kind of intense harassment, we're not going to make any progress in growing the game in different types of communities. So that's the little spiel I had I just thought of because I was still I was reading more stuff about Kadri and Bennington over the course of this morning while I was eating my breakfast, drinking my coffee, and just... It's ridiculous we still have shit like this. Bennington is... Ugh, he sucks as a person. Okay. Now, baseball, baseball, baseball. So, we are about, I'd say, month and a half, seven weeks into the Major League Baseball season. We're starting to get an understanding of the lay of the land, of who is what and what is who. You can't really make definitive judgments on any team, usually until about mid to late June, because that's when the last gasp-type gasp team can can circle the wagons and get their season back on track. I mean, the most textbook example, the Washington Nationals in 2019 when they won the World Series, that was a last-gasp-type effort where they were, I believe, 12 games under 500, 9 games under 500, something like that, in mid-June, and then they turned their season around and they went on to win the World Series, of course. So there's still time if you are a team that is under 500, if you are limping around because you're waiting for injured players to come back, but... For all intents and purposes, the way you should be thinking about your team right now is if you are over 500, if you are in first place, or if you're only a handful of games behind first place, what do we still need? What what are we not great at? Where are we shallow? Because that's the thing. I You can have what looks like a good opening day roster on paper. It is a 162-game war of attrition. On opening day, I thought the Mets had more than enough pitching to weather not having Jacob DeGrom until July was my safe assumption that June-July is when DeGrom would be available to pitch again. And that that prediction, yeah, DeGrom probably won't pitch until right before the All-Star break, if that. And the Mets are down three starting pitchers right now, and they are starting Trevor Williams. They're going to be starting David Peterson. Tywon Walker had a very good start in Colorado on Sunday, and they really needed that out of him, considering how shallow the rotation and the bullpen is. But my point about the Mets isn't about how they've weathered the storm. It's that you can look like you have seven or eight guys who can be starters in your rotation and really quickly, it can not go well. I mean, DeGrom tweaked, I think, they scalpula, that the muscle group in your back between your two shoulders, Scherzer, oblique, Tyler McGill, bicep, and like that, you're down three starting pitchers. You're down three starting pitchers, and what you thought was a strength of your team is now going to be one of the shallower groups on your team. There are not a lot of teams in Major League Baseball with the depth to survive three injuries to the rotation. I mean, in a normal year, 
a one-two-three of Carlos Carrasco, Chris Bassett, and Taiwan Walker, that's a reasonable starting rotation. I mean, you could probably be in the mix for a wild card with that as your one-two-three, but the rest of your team's got to be lights out good. And for now, the Mets' offense has been pretty good, but. That's the thing. You got to think about what you need. As a Met fan right now, I'm pretty convinced the Mets need to go out and get another bullpen arm because they're down two bullpen arms. They do not have enough guys to get outs out of the bullpen right now. That is an issue. They probably need one more bat in that lineup so that eight and nine aren't punts on day, on certain days. I understand that the James McCann injury was kind of weird that, you know, a catcher, you would think a catcher would be able to catch a ball without breaking his hand, but that's kind of the way the game goes sometimes. But you get what I'm saying here. They're not in dire straits. They've been lucky. The rest of their division has gotten off to a slow start. The Braves pitching staff has not been very good. Marcelo Zuda not having a particularly good start. Danby Swanson hasn't been that great. Austin Riley hasn't been that great. Adam Duvall hasn't been that great. So there's plenty of time for the other teams in the division to get back in the mix. And I'm more than certain the Braves will get back in the mix. The Mets have a brutal June where they have to play the three California teams, the Brewers, and I believe the other good team they have to play is, I want to say the Angels, but I could be wrong. I might be thinking of the Yankees who have the Angels in the first week of June. I could be wrong on that. I'd have to check. But thinking big picture about where these teams are at. So the Yankees off to a terrific start. Uh, I, I, and this is why that first weekend of the regular season when they lost two out of three in Baltimore, I was just losing my mind at the insufferable, entitled asshole Yankee fan on Twitter, like the guy who used to work for FAN, the one with the really annoying voice, John Yastrzemski. Bro, it is fucking April. Hitters are behind. Pitchers are behind. Spring training was four weeks instead of eight weeks. It's going to take a little bit of time for the lineup to get it together. And what do you know? The Yankees lineup is fine. Aaron Judge is playing like an MVP, which that was my prediction. So far, of all of my predictions I made on the baseball preview show with Chris Schweitzer before the season started, Aaron Judge for MVP in the American League and getting a massive payday, that turned out, looks it looks pretty good so far. Hopefully, he stays healthy. That's always been the concern with Judge. It's never been the talent. It's can he play 140 games in the outfield without breaking down it's hard to be that big and that athletic that's just a simple fact of life it's why big men in basketball get hurt so frequently the body is not meant to be like that it's just that's a freak of nature type situation of course john carlos stanton has quieted a lot of the gobble yankee fans from the last couple of years who would I still remember his first game as a Yankee. He struck out three times and him being viciously booed in the bottom of the ninth inning when he came to hit for the fourth time. His first game as a Yankee. Uh, Stan has been very good to start the year. He has, I think, 11 home runs. I think Judge has 13. Or maybe, no, Judge has 13. Stan has 10, I think, something like that. They've been good. Anthony Rizzo, very much taking advantage of playing at Yankee Stadium. That is something I thought would that a lot of Yankee fans are undercutting in terms of the production that was going to be on this team was just Rizzo playing 81 home games at Yankee Stadium is going to be really conducive to a successful season for him because of the type of hitter he is and just lefties hit better at Yankee Stadium. I mean, 314. It's not that hard to do if you get good contact on the ball. And Rizzo is still a pretty good hitter, decent defensive first baseman. 
It looks like DJ LeMayhew is slowly but surely figuring it out. I don't know if he'll ever be 2019 Silver Slugger DJ LeMayhew again, but he looks a lot better than he did last year. He still hits the ball on the ground a little bit too much by the modern contemporary school of baseball thought where you want to be hitting the ball in the air to drive it, looking for home runs, but he looks better. The Donaldson stuff with Tim Anderson, that's just bullshit. Donaldson's an asshole. He always has been an asshole, and... I'm glad the Yankees made him eat it, made him wear it, because that, it would have been very easy for the Yankees to say, it was just a misunderstanding, Josh meant no ill will, no. They threw him out there, and they made him wear it, which, right thing to do. It sends a good message to the public, to everybody else on the team, that we're not going to tolerate this bullshit, and we're not going to defend it. So, good on that. The Aaron Hicks stuff is funny. Aaron Hicks is very much one of the lightning rods, him and Joey Gallo, for the Yankees, in terms of fan opinion because when I look at Hicks I understand why Cashman gave him the extension he did he's got plus speed a decent defender he gets on base a lot his hitting hasn't come back like it was in 2018 in 2019 very much a juice ball merchant of the school of some of the guys we saw I mean I think Hicks had like 25 28 home runs something like that in 2019 just He's not that hitter. The ball is dead, and that is a real th problem that's in baseball right now is that it's more or less just unless you absolutely tattoo a ball, it's not going to carry on you. I, I feel like Pete Alonso should have probably like five or six more home runs. He's hit the shit out of the ball, but a lot of these balls that look great off the bat die on the warning track. I mean, I was at the Met game last Wednesday where he hit one to right center field in the gap, and I thought, easy home run, easy home run, and I casually watched Julio Rodriguez jog under it and catch it. That No, not Julio Rodriguez. That was the weekend before when they played the Mariners. Um... I want to say it was Harrison Bader in center field. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Harrison Bader. You understand my point. The dead ball has dramatically changed a couple of hitters, and for some guys like Aaron Hicks, it's made them a lot more vulnerable. For a guy like Pete Alonso, he's focused more on hitting for contact. Ditto with Jeff McNeil, who has been a revelation because he went back to hitting the ball intelligently instead of trying to mash the ball, which is a pleasant surprise. But last thought on the Yankees, and... It's interesting to me because I get to watch the Yankees through a neutral observer lens because I hold no ill will towards the Yankees. The Yankees don't affect my day-to-day -day life. I just, I have, I deal with a lot of Yankee fans, both as a sports person in the New York area because the Yankees will always dominate every form of media because the Yankees have the biggest fan base of the four New York, of the four sports in the New York area because they're the most, they've been the most successful. But when I think about the Yankees and what's been their problem in years past in the postseason, it's the inability to find runs when they need it. They can't get that big hit. They can't extend these rallies. And they've got the bullpen. The bullpen, even with Chad Green out and what Chapman looking kind of cooked, I know after the game yesterday, the first game of the doubleheader, Aaron Boone said that he was dealing with an Achilles issue in his left foot, that he was kind of sore, he wasn't able to push off all the way, that kind of thing, and that they might throw him on the IL for a week or so to kind of let it cool down, but... Chapman might be done as the Yankee closer, and that's fine. They've got more than enough viable arms. They've got to get Loisaga right. I was very high on Loisaga at the end of last season. He looked really good, and he was maybe going to be the heir apparent to be the closer if Chapman faltered this year. But right now, it looks like it's going to be Clay Holmes, who the Yankees got for nothing. And 
This is one of the things the Yankees have always, always been good at, especially since, I would say, 2015, 2016, when the the modern, what we think of as the modern stats revolution in baseball, where we start talking about things like exit velocity and launch angle, pitch mix, rotation, uh, RPMs, rotations per minute on breaking pitches, understanding pitch splits better, what pitches have more movement, what who's underutilizing something they're good at. And the Yankees have been great at identifying these relievers who throw hard sinkers. And that's what's made Clay Holmes so good this year. I think I read it in The Athletic last night in Lindsey Adler, the Yankee beat writer's write-up of the first game of the doubleheader, that when he was in Pittsburgh, he was throwing that sinker, I think it was like 30 35% of the time, and now he's throwing it 60-something percent of the time. And that sinker is the one of like the 10 best pitches in baseball in terms of results against. I think it has like a 090-something average against of ball... Just otherworldly good stuff. And yeah, maybe as the season progresses and teams get more tape on him, it'll be they'll be able to get a little bit better contact. But right now, he's got that sinker humming, and teams can't even put it in play. I mean, he pitched on Saturday against the White Sox, and I don't think they put a single ball in play against him. How good that sinker was cutting, was breaking on them. And that's just... That's one of the things the smart teams are finding ways to do. You're finding these relievers... You're finding these pitchers who throw one really good pitch, have two other okay pitches, and saying, okay, we need you to use this more. I mean, it's what the Astros did with Garrett Cole. They said, hey, we think you can do this with your fastball. You should be throwing it more. They started having him throw that elevator fastball where they'll go slider low and away, fastball up, and the hitter's eye level is down, the ball is out of the strike zone, it's near the letters, and they're still swinging at it because the way the eye level works and because there's so much movement on the off-speed that the fastball out of the hand coming straight at him still fucks him up. And that's one of the things, man. You can salvage guys in baseball in a way you can't in other sports because... It is so specialized. You have these relievers who only have to throw 15 to 20 pitches every other day. And you can hide somebody who only has two good pitches in the bullpen if they only have to pitch every other day. And you can be selective of, okay, well, it's this part of the other team's lineup, so we don't want to put him out there against them. But against this part of the lineup, we think he's going to be all right based on what he throws. So that's just another wrinkle that I find really interesting. The next thing I want to touch on here is the young prospect boon. This year, a lot, a lot of guys who have had a lot of their development fucked with. Let, let's not forget that there was not a minor league baseball season in 2020. There was a truncated minor league baseball season in 2021. Because remember, during the pandemic, baseball gutted the minor leagues. They got rid of a lot of the lower levels of the minors, where most teams only have two teams now as opposed to five or six, where they had low A, high A, they had single, double, triple. Most teams now only have a single and a triple A, and those are where these guys get the at-bats that prepare them to be professionals. These guys in the minors need those five to 600 at-bats every year in the minors to get ready to get to the big leagues. That is the thing about baseball. It is about repetitions. It is about a practical experience and getting ready. It is the longest career arc. It is the most grinding career arc because of the nature of the sport, how long the season is. And we are finally starting to see some of these highly touted prospects who have been had who have had the last two years of their lives really screwed up. Guys like Julio Rodriguez, guys like Adley Rushman, Spencer Torkelson, Bobby Witt Jr., 
these are guys I've been hearing about since I was still in college when they were getting drafted, when they were a year into the minors, and just it had taken so long for them to get a crack at it because of how fucked up the world has been the last two seasons. I mean, I've been hearing about Adley Rushman at Oregon State, I think since I was in... Since I was like a junior in college, I think was the first time I heard Adley Rushman's name. And he just got to the big leagues on Saturday and produced a really cool viral clip, which I'm sure if you are on baseball Twitter or just on Twitter in general, you saw the clip of him going out to home plate for the first time in the bottom of the first inning at Camden Yards. The umpire shaking his hand, patting him on the chest protector. Rushman walks behind home plate. And before he pulls his helmet down to get down in the squat to start warming up his pitcher, he just did a quick pan. He turned around. He looked behind him, home plate at the crowd. He looked all the way around. He gave himself a head nod with that look of, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. He pulled the helmet down. He got into his squat to start warming up his pitcher. And just uh, that moment of reflection, that, okay, we're here now. It's time. That kind of instantaneous moment that all of us are familiar with. No matter what type of person you are, you have had that moment in your life where you're looking around at whether it's the people you're with, what you're doing, and just said, wow, I am here. This is a core life memory that I'm never going to forget as long as I live. And to see a professional athlete doing that... That's cool, man. It's what I always talk about when it comes to what I want out of my athletes. I just want to know it is so, so validating as a fan who is crazy as I am to see these guys show that they care the same way that I do. That if that was me in Adley Rushman's shoes, I would have done the same exact thing. Took a moment to soak it all in, look around and say, okay, we made it. Now it's time to start doing things. And he hit a triple in his first game, which, you know, a catcher hitting a triple is awesome. I really hope at 4.30 when the at Orioles Twitter account tweets their lineup that he is in, because I would really like to see him play. I've been waiting on the Adley Rushman debut a long time, and I'm very excited to see what he can do. I mean, the poor Orioles, man. I want to do an Orioles episode sometime in the near future, probably after the hockey and basketball playoffs are over, and we can kind of transition more to a baseball-centric and then the two racing series. But I want to do an Orioles-centric episode because the Orioles have been waiting for so long so long to start calling up all of these guys they've drafted so highly over the last number of years so long for them to start changing the direction of the franchise guys like Adley Rushman guys like Grayson Rodriguez they have so many of these guys they drafted highly from being so mediocre to outright bad the last five to seven years it's going to be imperative for the long-term viability of that franchise that these guys they draft actually turn into something. I mean, it's one thing to say we're committed to a rebuild, and it's another thing to actually rebuild. You can just say we're rebuilding indefinitely in baseball, and you could not be lying. I mean, that's the thing. Like I was just saying about how long it takes to get to the big leagues from after you're drafted. Guys can go four five years in the minors after being drafted before they get even a chance, let alone to be a regular starter. So if it takes that long, you realistically can say, yeah, we're rebuilding for seven or eight years and only have three or four regular starters to show for it, and your fan base gets fed up. I mean, you think about what's going on in Pittsburgh, what goes on in Oakland, what goes on in Cincinnati. 
these teams that are just making no commitment to winning and just indefinitely saying, okay, we're rebuilding. We'll figure it out when we get there. And it's why the Orioles need these guys like Rushman to start hitting, why the Mariners need like Julio Rodriguez to pop off, why the Royals need Bobby Wood Jr. to go off, why the Tigers need Spencer Torkelson to get going, to get Tyreek Skubal going. All of these teams have been telling their fans, we need you to be patient with us. We have to wait for these players to develop. Okay, they've had three, four years of development. Let's see what we got and see what we still need. And now, once you have a better idea of what you still need, then you can start being aggressive in the trade and free agent market, which is where you hope your team is going to end up filling in the blanks. I mean, it's easy for me to talk about in the framework of the Mets and the Yankees because those are the teams I'm most intimately familiar with, but you think about what the Mets have developed in-house. They drafted Pete Alonso, they drafted Jeff McNeil, they drafted Brandon Nimmo drafted Jacob deGrom, but other than that, most of the pieces on the Mets are free agents or trade acquisitions because the Mets understand we're not the best at talent development. We need to fill in these holes based on what we have. They were able to turn two middle infield prospects and a pitcher into Francisco Lindor. They were able to turn an outfielder and a pitcher into Chris Bassett. They were able to throw a blank check at Max Scherzer. They were able to spend money on Trevor May. They traded a highly touted prospect in Jared Kelnick, who has not been great for the Mariners, to get Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano. Yes, I have to mention that they did get Cano in that trade, but Diaz is one of the five, six best closers. So that is something you can focus on. And it's easy. I would say it is easier to build a team in trades and free agency in baseball than in any other sport because of the nature of the sport. Because there are always going to be 10 or 11 teams that just have no interest in competing and will be willing to take the box of magic beans with five prospects in it for a good player to a great player. I mean... I mean, you think about it. Mookie Betts won an MVP and is in his prime, and the Red Sox traded him for four guys. That kind of thing just doesn't happen in the other sports. It kind of does in the NBA, but those, when you get those, like, four for one, like the Anthony Davis trade, for example, you've already seen those guys at the NBA level because they've been in the league two or three years because they go into the league at 18 or 19, depending how old they are, when they get drafted that first year out of college. You don't, you don't see that in the NFL, in the NHL to the same degree. The NHL, you have the Magic Beans trade every now and then. Like, I can't even say for Jack Eichel because the Sabres didn't really get a lot for Jack Eichel. But Eric Carlson, that was, you know, a top five pick and a really good prospect in Eric Brandstrom. That, you know, that's something you could talk about. But by and large, there are, the baseball world market is always going to be more conducive to those types of trades because it takes so long to get a good team together that you can justify for four years just accumulating prospects on the idea that, you know, if we trade for 30 prospects over the course of we traded eight roster players and we got 30 prospects back, five or six of those guys are going to be decent players, and that's something you can work on. If you're just playing the percentages in tra- in the trade market in baseball, you can kick the can down the road for quite a while. I mean, you look at the trade tree for some of the moves like the Tampa Bay Rays have made over the years, how they turned Chris Archer into Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows and I think one other person I'm forgetting. But you get what I'm saying here. And that's the thing. I'm very excited to see how this season develops. I mean, the Dodgers have looked mortal for the last couple weeks, I would say. 
Max Muncy is having a really rough start to his season. He's hitting below 200. I think Cody Bellinger is just skinny Adam Dunn now, where he's either going to hit the ball 100, 100 miles or he's going to strike out. The pitching staff is looking a little weary. Kershaw's been out. Walker Buehler's gotten hit hard a couple of times. They've still got Urias and Tony Gonsolin, but they look like they're a starting pitcher short right now. The Giants not getting as much of that high leverage success as they did last year, even though they're still a pretty good team. The Padres are very dinged up right now, missing a lot of important players. Of course, they're missing Fernando Tatis. They are still going to end up being in the mix with this expanded playoff. Milwaukee, the pitching hasn't been as good as it was last year. Still decent. The Cardinals always get it together, but they are one of the teams that why we say you can't evaluate where teams are in June uh, in May because it takes a while for teams to figure out their identity, that things like that. The White Sox have not been as good as they were last year. I know they've been missing Lance Lynn for pretty much the entire season so far, but they haven't been good as expected. The Guardians have been a little bit better than expected with a very motley crew mix of guys like Josh Naylor and Stephen Kwan, who have been very nice, all things considered. I mean, I'm still waiting for Fran Mel Reyes to get going, but he might be a victim of the dead ball kind of killing him because he still hits the ball very hard, even though he strikes out a lot. There's a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, I haven't even mentioned the Angels once. I mean, we're 30 minutes into this episode, and Mike Trout is very much doing Mike Trout things again. I mean, he hit another home run last night. I, I, I jokingly tweeted it last night after I saw the highlight. I said, we got to find a harder league for this guy to play in. And it's true, because Mike Trout makes this shit look so fucking easy. I, I mean, he's got such fast hands. He gets in, he gets his hands around. He gets the head of the bat around on that inside fastball, maybe better than anybody else in baseball. There is no way to pitch to him intelligently because he can kill you. That man is content to walk, and if you're going to throw him strikes, he's just going to hit the ball a mile. Mike Trout is an insanely talented baseball player. When the Angels come to the New York area, I will be there for more than one game because I want to witness some greatness in person. That's the kind of thing you got to make a point to see if you have the means and the availability and the accessibility that we do here in the New York area where, you know, 40 minutes on a train, 30-minute drive, whatever, and you can see special talent for like $8 on a weeknight. That's better than going to the movies. That's better than going out to dinner. Like, I, yeah, could I go out to dinner with a friend or two tonight and just, you know, hang out? Yeah. I'd rather see Adley Rushman play. I'd rather see Aaron Judge play. That's the kind of thing, man. It's really nice living in the New York area to have the means to see all of these teams and these great players. Okay. That will just about do it for today's show. I do still got to get the gym in, go make a meal to eat before I go get on my public transportation journey to Yankee Stadium later. I think the Lightning close it out tonight. I think that series is done. And then Colorado-St. Louis, I think Colorado probably wins tonight too. Uh, Billy Huso, really good regular season, has not been as sharp in the playoffs. Bennington's not coming back for the Blues, so that to consider. If the Heat are going to play as good defense as they did in Game 3, I think Miami probably goes up three games to one in that series tonight as well. That'll just about do it for today's show. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good one.